Kings chapter 5, we're in the last chapter of Kings, and I don't feel like getting up again and trying to get over the dead back. There, okay. We're in the uh, last chapter of James, a few sermons left, and um, it's been uh, it's been a tough study, honestly, for me, which um, because I spend my time getting beat up all week about it, and then I get to come here and go, oh, here's what God taught me, so it's a good thing. We have a couple study guides, I think, left there. If you have missed some of our sermons, um, there's a few sermons that didn't get recorded, but they're all on the uh, website in writing, in like script form. So you can certainly uh, see those. But there's a study guide back there with information. If you ever want to go through it again, um, by all means, uh, please do. It's uh, got a little more information than, than I speak on, if you will. And I used to have a mug up here. I don't know what happened to it. But if you have a mug, this is my little plug for mugs. You see a bunch of mugs back there. I'm just saying, hey, bring a mug, leave a mug here so you can drink uh, coffee. And uh, if... You bring the, there's no prize for the best or freakiest mug, but uh, if you can just grab whatever mug's there, and if you grab someone else's mug, hey, tough stuff. So, hey, you just beat them to it. But uh, we'll wash it for you, and, and it'll just be, I guess, a little more, this feels a little more homey for whatever reason. Little paper cups, kind of get tired of those. So we're in James chapter 5, though, and I really wish this was a fluffier sermon. So I apologize for not being fluffy, but you come on December 20th, the like last sermon before Christmas. We are having a Christmas Eve service. There won't be a, a huge sermon there. I pray that you will come, but if uh, everyone comes, it will be real interesting and nice and cozy in here. But um, typically you come in on the, the, I guess, the weekend before Christmas and you expect this baby Jesus sermon. That's just not going to happen. I laid out uh, the... James study and said, you know what, no matter what it hits, I'm going to hit what God has us hit for that study. And it happened to be James chapter 5, which is not fluffy, really. So um, we'll see. It's it's God. I'm just the messenger. So we'll see uh, what happens here. James chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to go. And I'm excited to go there. Here we go. It says, verse 1, come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. Merry Christmas. Right? I mean, that's... I read that, honestly, a couple weeks ago and went, Oh no, this is going to be the kind of thing that maybe you shouldn't do on Christmas or right before. And people would say, no, you do a you know, baby Jesus manger, wise man come on sermon, and that's not going to happen. James is very bold, and we're going straight through. And I've been sitting on this question um, that I have struggled with, I guess, all week, and it's this, as I looked at this passage, and that is, ask yourself, what do you have out of all that you have? And we've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of other things too, relationships, all kinds of things. Out of everything that you have, what do you have that has not been given to you? And 
again, if you, if you walked into my home, you would see a lot of, you know, stuff, furniture, whatever. And most of the, the things that we have, honestly, we've, we've never bought. And people have either bought it for us, not because it's just the way it happens with family and whatnot, or we've inherited it. We just don't, we just don't have that much stuff that we've ever purchased. And that's probably why it's all crappy and falling apart. But, you know, we, it's just given to us. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about everything else, including that, I guess, in some sense. What do you have that has not been given to you? And in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this idea of becoming like children, like a child if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And I don't think that he wants us to go back to being babies and to, to have diapers on, but I'm more inclined to believe that he wants us to recognize that we're in fact already there, that that's how we exist and it doesn't take too much thought to see that that's pretty true and that we often make a mess of ourselves all the time. And I mean that figuratively in a baby diaper sense. Because we are very much a prideful people. And if you've had children or you've seen children, especially in the diaper stage, they are very um, prideful, assuming little punks who think that as their diapers are full, they need no help. In fact, when the child gets to a certain age, crawling and and able to communicate a little bit, they are the biggest self-denying, my diapers are full type of people that you will ever encounter. And you can even ask them, you get to like, you know, did you do-do, or whatever it is you happen to say, like, oh, no, no. And they'll be walking around with what looks like 100 pounds of something in their pants, and they just refuse to like, no, just play along and nothing's wrong. And they will continue that way, knowing that it will in fact hurt them. But... I think that we're very similar in how we relate with our Father if we recognize that we are children. And I think that, in a very real sense, we pretend like our diapers are not full. And we pretend we don't stink. And we pretend that we don't need God's help. And we run away from the Father who says, look, I'm trying to help you. I want to help you. No, 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 I'm okay. And in our pride we believe that we have much more figured out than we do. And ever since the Garden of Eden was where it started in Genesis chapter 3, we have declared ourselves independent and secure when in reality we're desperately dependent and in incredible need of God. And my children, if you think about just real practical level, my kids, got three kids, two boys and a little girl, they're desperately dependent upon me for everything. For everything. Um, if I don't provide them food, they will starve. If I don't provide them clothing, they're going to freeze. We've had those conversations, especially when my son wanted to run away one time. I said, that's fine, you just can't take any of my clothes with you. He said, What? I said, yeah, that's mine, that's mine. So if you want to go outside naked, I have no problem with that, but it's going to be a little embarrassing and pretty cold. And he thought about that for a little bit. Also, the other day when he, uh, his grandfather burned him a CD of the uh, Middle Earth, you know, Lord of the Rings soundtrack. And so I wanted to listen to it. So I pulled it out. He's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I said, I'm listening. He's like, that's mine. And I said, okay, you can listen to it on your CD player which you don't have. <laughs> he thought about it. He's like, okay, I just want you to know it's mine as you play it. Like, it's yours, son. That's fine. Like that bed you're sleeping on? 
How about the dinner I'm about to feed you? You know, those things are mine. So, I think uh, my kids are, are desperately dependent on my, If I don't give them a place to sleep, they will certainly suffer in some way. If I don't encourage my boys in their mannishness, in their maleness, and, you know, you are a man, this is what a man does, a man protects, as a man builds, a man does these things. If I don't give them my smile, my approval, my high five, my well done, they will suffer. They will, in some way, grow up and be insecure or feel broken. My daughter the same way. If I don't cuddle her, if I don't love on her, if I don't teach her what true beauty is, but also admire and encourage her beauty, she will not feel loved. And she will try to satisfy that in many different ways. Not that it's all dependent upon me, but I certainly have a responsibility. They are dependent upon me for many things. So how much more, when we look at children, how much more are we, even if we don't admit it, dependent upon our Creator, our Father, as He describes Himself, Father. How much more are we dependent upon Him for everything? Not just the practicals, but certainly for our needs, but also for our acceptance, our security, our self-esteem, if you will, our identity, our joy. We're so dependent upon Him, and yet we pretend like we don't need Him. And so, I think a lot of us, in a very practical way, not necessarily something we go about admitting, don't really believe that we need God to save us as much as we think we need our stuff to save us. I mean, that's just how we live it out, even if we don't admit that we do. And we'll listen, honestly, and guilty as charged, we'll listen to pastors go through a book of James and talk about the moral stuff, Talk about living right and honoring God. But when we actually get into the practical, this is what this looks like, we recoil. Well, Jesus talked about loving God. Just love God. Jesus talked about more practical things than anyone else. And he talked about money in particular more than anyone else. He was very much about the practical living of our faith. In other words, and I've heard this said in a community group that I led, We'll give Him our heart. We'll give God's people and God's church our lives. But my stuff and my money is mine. So this is going to be one of those sermons that you're actually going to listen to. And, not that part, but you're actually going to hear, you're going to assume or hope that I'm talking to someone else. I think this probably happens every Sunday. But this one in particular, you are actually going to believe that I'm talking to someone else because James is going to start talking about money and rich people and none of us think that we're actually rich. No one will self-describe them as rich or wealthy. We'll define it differently. And granted, there are some people in here, I may have met you, who don't idolize money. But for... The rest of us, the truth is, we are much like the young ruler that approached Jesus in Matthew 19. And he came to Jesus and he said, look, I love God, I love His people, I've done all these good things. What is there left for me to do, Master, Rabbi? And Jesus says, go sell everything. 
He goes, seriously? Because that's, I mean, I got a lot of money. And he walks away. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples as this guy walks away, for he had lots of money. Says, truly I say to you, speaking to his disciples, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel, which is pretty big, you know, camel, right? To go through the eye of a needle, which is pretty small. I'm thinking that's never going to happen. This is what Jesus says. To go through the eye of a needle, then, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So who wants to be rich? I'm not rich. I'm gl- I hope there's some people who are rich in here that's hear- hearing this. Right? Because none of us are rich. I just pay my bills. I'm barely able to make it. You, I could give you all kinds of statistics, and I won't, about how wealthy are just the fact that you are American, you are. I just couldn't buy. We'll see. The rich young ruler idolized riches, and that was his thing, and that's why we'll talk about it. Everyone else has their own thing. His was money. And so in verse 1, James begins with a call to repentance. A, come on, come now, you rich. I love it. He said it in the previous passage as well. Come now. And so I'm going to start on this glorious Christmas, pre-Christmas sermon on the week when you have either got all your gifts or about to with a call to repentance like James is. And I'm not trying to get you to change, but... Hopefully, you will change if you need to by the grace of God. But more than half of us are going to ignore what James called to repentance and what I believe God is calling me to do because you believe that being rich is a particular tax bracket, it's a particular job or career, it's a particular income level, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who find meaning and purpose and security in the gospel which is the good news and promises of stuff as opposed to the gospel of Jesus alone. Those who are rich, as James would describe them, are acquiring wealth, arranging your life in such a way to get something bigger or better, maybe a house, maybe a job, or the next new thing that you believe you you need because... When all comes down to it, the rich live as if this is all there is. A horizontal world. And so they search this earth for meaning and purpose in stuff. And everyone has their own stuff they like. Not everyone likes the same stuff. But in terms of wealth, wealth can buy lots of different things. As they search for meaning and purpose. And one theologian said it, I like the way he said it said, acquiring wealth to cure the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion. It works for a while. It does. It'll mask it for a while. It'll give you that energy, but ultimately it won't cure the problem. You who are rich, you who are rich, speaking to myself as well, You who are rich, you need to understand this, that your life has one primary purpose. 
and the primary purpose of your life. Here's the big, you know, mystery of life is, uh, and the guy dies. Now, here we go. The primary purpose of life and purpose of all things is to glorify God. Okay? You hold on to that. What does that mean? It means your entire life. What is that? Everything. From the moment you breathe a breath or breathe amniotic fluid, whatever, from that moment you're conceived to the moment you die, everything is purposed to glorify God. Which means your life, your death, your pain, your joys, your stuff, your home, your marriage, your children, God gave you all of those things to make you comfortable? No. To make you joyful? No. Although joy comes from those things. It was to glorify Himself. Your prayers, your words, your thoughts, even your evangelism. This is, we were talking about this this week with a group of guys who gathered to talk about theology. The primary purpose of evangelism is not to save people. That's a nice benefit. It happens. The primary purpose of evangelism is to declare the glories of God, the beauties and majesty, who God is by nature of the cross. And when that is declared, evangelism occurs, salvation occurs, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to glorify God. So people are like, why evangelize? To glorify God. Everything we have is to glorify God, to bring Him more glory, more majesty, to make much of Him. And therefore, anything you have, anything you have is God's. And you are delusional. Catch this. You are, and James would say the same thing. You are delusional if you think anything you have is actually yours. But I've, I've worked so hard to get where I'm at. I mean, when other people chose to be unwise with their time and their education, I mean, I was wise. When everyone else wanted to play, I worked. And I'll say this. You are an arrogant nut job if you actually believe that was all by your power alone. Exodus 4.11 is one of my favorite verses. It's the verse where Moses is talking to God and arguing with him about why he's not equipped to go back and talk to Pharaoh. God, have you really thought this through? Do you know who I am? I'm a fugitive. I'm 80 now. I haven't been back to Egypt for 40 years. And my tongue doesn't work very well. You ever heard me talk? I sound like a buffoon. I can't, I'm not articulate. Here's what God says to him. Then the Lord said to him, and I'm kind of thinking he was not like, you know, Moses... He was a little bolder than that. He says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who made you the way you are? That means your mind, your education, your abilities, your capacity to grow, your desires to understand, your muscles, your fingers, your ability to rock, walk, run, swim, your gifts of music. Your ability to dance, your family history, your very personality is a gift from God. Everything is from God. Every good is from God. And it is all for His glory. 
I'm very good at playing the piano. Because God made you that way. My personality is such. Because God made you that way. I was in this family. Because God made you that way. And put you there to glorify himself. And James says to these people who have wealth that they think they've gotten for themselves. He says, if you don't change the way you live. And he's almost talking in past tense. Like, too late. Here's what's going to happen. He says, if you don't change the way you live, especially with your wealth, you will experience misery. Speaking of judgment. And he says, because those who persevere in pursuing anything other than God, be it money, be it sex, be it alcohol, be it just relationships apart from Him, or any other aspect of creation, He will end up giving you or you will end up getting what you want. And you will persevere all the way to the point of pursuing it till you're howling in hell. If you don't believe me, read Luke 16. It talks about two guys, one living for comfort and one living in pain. You'll get what you want. And so he is serious about this. Merry Christmas. Fantastic. Howling in hell. That's wonderful. That's where James is at. And maybe it's what we need to hear. Verse 2 and 3, he goes into some specifics, really a general overview, I should say, of the heart of the problem. He says, your riches, he's like, let me get to the heart of it. Your riches, you rich people, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That doesn't happen in heaven. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So, in these two verses, he gives us an overview of the heart of the problem, which is hoarding. Now, I think, if you've ever seen that show, Hoarding or No Hoarder, it's similar in what we're talking about here, but a little bit different. But the rich here are hoarding their wealth. What's that mean? Well, they are acquiring wealth, they are stockpiling wealth, they are accumulating and collecting their wealth, as opposed to giving and dispersing and sharing. So their coins are corroding, rusting, because they're not used. And their clothes are being eaten by moths because they're sitting on the hanger. They've got too many. A poor person doesn't have that problem. A poor person this time typically had one, maybe two pairs of clothes. So they wore them all the time. Moths aren't following you around unless you're pig pen eating your clothes. Okay? So you basically have one set and that's fine. The opposite is someone who stockpiles all kinds of clothes and they're never worn. Ever seen that, husbands, with your wives? I have. God bless her. Okay? We were first, long time ago, not now, okay? But long time ago, and many moons ago, okay? We had a condo. It was probably 750 square feet. But we had the biggest closet you could ever imagine this condo. I don't know. It was designed just for women. It was like from here all the way to like here. It was gigantic. And I had, you're right, about that much in it, okay? So I had this little section, but the thing was packed. Packed with clothes. My wife, she worked at the Bon Marche, so she had to, uh, well, Macy's now, but she worked at the Bon Marche and worked in kind of upper-end clothing, so she had to, well, this is the justification. I have to have stuff like this, right? So... It was all hung up, but two-thirds of the stuff still had the tags on it. Now, I know, husbands, you go, don't go home like, see, this is what he was talking about. Well, you got tags here. We're the moths. Okay, I'm not talking about that. 
but I am. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. The closet was full, and I kid you not, one evening, like the seismic equivalent of a 4.1 earthquake began, and I opened up the bedroom door to see, and the entire closet, steel-reinforced shelving, fell with the weight of the clothes. And I said, maybe there's a problem here. But that's what we're talking about. Where you get, Why do you have all this stuff? Well, I, I need it. I need all of it. And so he's saying, look, all these clothes, your stock, money, your stockpile, just waiting and sitting on, building your silos. The sin of hoarding is denying the proper use of wealth, which is, as with everything, to glorify God. The proper use of wealth, wrongfully trusting in wealth for whatever, for acceptance, for security, whatever it is that you're trusting in wealth for, and then presuming that you're going to live another day to enjoy that wealth. 1 Timothy 6, uh, we'll be going through 1 Timothy soon here, but 1 Timothy 6, Paul again condemns not riches, but rich in a particular attitude of rich. And then he tells them what they should be doing, which is the opposite of what James is saying they are doing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's right. I'm to be comfortable. To enjoy. That's why I've been given this stuff, right? In some sense, I do believe that's true. But he goes into specifics about what the enjoyment is with wealth. Here's the enjoyment, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure. I heard treasure before. Yeah, James talks about laying up treasures in the end day. Judgment. The opposite is storing up treasure for themselves in heaven as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the opposite of hoarding. So these guys are putting their faith in that which corrodes. In the Greek, the same word is used for corrode or corrosion as it is for venom. And so it's the idea of this, this unwanted poison you think isn't happening but it's seeping in to everything. And the truth is, everything in the world corrodes. Anything that's earthly corrodes. And a lot of us go, exactly. That's why we need to put all our effort into relationships. Right? When people die, when you have funerals, that's typically what it is. That shows you how important relationships are. I think relationships are important. But they also corrode. Sometimes they're poisonous. They are not Jesus. They are not that relationship which never corrodes, which is never poisonous, which moths never eat. Glorifying God in that sense is the exact opposite of what James says these guys are doing. There is only one thing that doesn't corrode, and that is Jesus. And Jesus warned them in Matthew chapter 6, the same sermon on the Mount that James takes a lot of his stuff out of. He says, look, Verse 21 of chapter 6. I'm sorry. Matthew 6, 19. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Same thing James says. Where thieves break in and steal. But, do this, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's no sin in being rich. There's no sin in having wealth. But there is a sin on how that wealth is used. There is a sin on how that wealth is accumulated. And there's also a sin on where that wealth, or I should say what place that wealth takes in your heart. There is sin there. And the danger of wealth sometimes is, it's not that you can buy a lot of stuff, but it provides this cushion that often I think doles us to what is most important and gets us to a place where um, we don't feel dependent upon Jesus anymore. That's the beauty of poverty. So verse 4 to 5, James is going to get real specific. He says, let me show you the evidence of what this hoarding looks like, of what the improper use of wealth looks like. So he moves beyond the general and gets very specific, and he says, Behold, behold, here's the evidence. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God cares about this. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So he gives us specific examples of what are probably going on in his particular context here, of what it looks like when someone lays up treasures for themselves on earth. And he says that there's these harvesters and workers of the field who are being defrauded. And if you read the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24, there were rules about how harvesters or workers of the fields were to be paid, and they were to be paid the wages that they committed to, the boss had committed to, the same day that they worked them. And so what's happening here is these bosses, these wealthy, are keeping back payment or not paying what they are supposed to pay fully, or they're not paying on time, or they're not paying at all. One or the other, or all. And the question is, why are they doing this? Because they can. It's kind of like, and if you're one of these bosses, which I doubt you are, it's like many of the employers today have an incredible opportunity to take advantage of the worker today. Because everyone wants a job. And so, because of the greed, ultimately, they will take advantage. But the rich here is not just someone who's a boss. We're not just someone with tons of wealth. But it's the rich defined as those who possess wealth and not a love for Jesus. And so their wealth is dictating everything that they do. They are governed by, as James talked about a couple weeks ago, what is most profitable for me. And not necessarily what is most radically glorifying to God and most radically loving to others. And what is right. Right and wrong are now situational. Situations changed, so therefore I'm going to do this because it's more beneficial for my company or for my personal family. Now, it's not that all of us have a business and all have employers and workers under us, but we all know what it means to obsess with money and obsess with having money and believe, which I think many of us do, that my problems will be solved if I had this amount of money. I think a lot of us live that way. If I only had this, I would have more joy. If I only had this, I wouldn't have this problem. 
If only I had this, I'd be out of debt, and then I wouldn't have these problems. And I could do so many other things. We actually believe, I think, money is the solution to most of our problems. But I think the point is, when someone becomes obsessed with money in that way and others, I've seen it where people, all their relationships become opportunities. You've seen that somewhat in, in, in those kind of pyramid scheme. Not, not all pyramid schemes, but those different things that I know some people get involved because they really believe in the product. At least that's the line they tell, right? And I, I, if you are involved in that, I'm not trying to announce yet it's between you and God and why you're doing that, but many of the people I've interacted with who are involved in those, they end up being your friend because you are a potential client. And their profit is now governing their relationships with others and maybe even with God because they get into it to make money. Nothing wrong with making money until that's your heart motivation. Then it's a problem. And then oftentimes when people obsess, maybe like these workers, the contracts and commitments you've made, which you're beginning to see that a lot even today with people who you know, make commitments and they can't make them, fulfill them. And so various things happen with the economy. And suddenly the commitments they make and the contracts they set, whether it be from the bank or from the people, whoever, renegotiated now because, you know, situations changed. And there's some beauty in being able to do that. There's also some bad decisions in being able to do that. I wonder how many of us rebudget for Christmas. Oh, I spent a little too much, so I'm not going to be able to give to this person this year or this church this year. And our budgets are dictated by the needs of the moment, like December. It's a giving month. And we give to everybody except God's people. And we rebudget according to what our needs are. Well, I really need to go on this trip now, so I'm going to square with this money, which means I'm going to actually give less over here this month. You know, my life, I have, uh, we have some debt. I don't think it's debt that's sinful. We decided to, you know, you take one of those home equity things and you build under your, well, I don't know if we build anything. We put a wall down and some doors so we could have an office because it was a space that you walk by. Like, oh, we have a room there? So now we use it. And, you know, you we are paying on that slowly. And it would be very easy for me, so much more convenient and comfortable to take the four or $500 that we give every month to the church and just pay our debt. That would be so much more comfortable. But the first thing we do is give. We're going to have less this month. Well, God better be doing something amazing. First line item is giving to others, to God's people. And that doesn't change. Certainly it changes if, if I have major changes in my life. But... Most of the time, doesn't change. Stays where it's at. I don't rebudget according to, gosh, my car broke down. Now to pay for that, I better rebudget how much I'm giving over here. That doesn't change. Mail rebudget like, do I really need my $99 Comcast television every month? Maybe we'll give 20 bucks extra to the church this year. Do we rebudget that way? That's, I think, obsessing with money, letting money and profit dictate what I do. To God's glory. You have defrauded. He says you have lived in luxury and self-indulgent lifestyles. Now, not all of us are greedy. There are people I know. There are many of us who give to others liberally, give to the church liberally and sacrificially. But at the same time, even among those people who give, I think many of us are guilty of living luxuriously. And we'll qualify that a little bit, but 
literally means, in this sense, a soft life. So the question isn't whether I'm rich or poor, because as I said, everyone thinks we're middle class. No one will actually go, you know, it's, when I was an English teacher, when I do self-grading, no one wanted to give anyone an A or C, always a B, because B just feels like, well, you're above average, but you're not quite standard, so that's good. So we'll all call ourselves middle class. We don't want to claim to be rich or poor. But the life of the rich, I think he's talking about, living luxuriously, is a life of pleasure. Not ultimate, like totally depraved pleasure, but pleasure defined as a life without self-denial. A life not necessarily corrupt in every single way, but I'll sin a little bit or fudge a little bit here if it will profit me or make me comfortable. It's the very opposite, I believe, of living like Jesus. And I don't suggest like the Franciscan monks who took a vow of apostolic poverty and sold everything and gave it all to the church, that we do that, that we keep one pair of clothes, that we take showers once a week to conserve water or walk to work every single day or just live on top ramen because that's, you know, poverty. So I can give more. And I'm not suggesting that. But here's the question I think is the heart of it, is that are you living sacrificially? Are you really living sacrificially? Does your faith, your commitment to Jesus, and if you're not a Christian, you can just sit back and listen. Because there's been a lot of false gospels out there going, hey, yeah, you know, give and you will be given. I'm not talking about that. The question truly, though, is, are you living sacrificially? Is your faith, Christian, costing you anything? Is it costing, even bottom line, costing you anything? Is it truly costing you anything, requiring you to make sacrifices? Because I'm convinced we make sacrifices out of abundance, which, in reality, is the very antithesis of what sacrifice is. Sacrifice, defined, is it's going to cost me something. And it costs different people different things. But it's going to be sacrificial between you and your Lord. And He knows. Check out Mark 12. This is um, a story that we've all heard. It gets to the part of, okay, one, talk about living luxuriously. I'm not living luxuriously. We're easy to answer that question. I could be living much more. Could you be living with less? Maybe it's a better question. Mark 12, verse 41. Jesus watching people, rich and poor, bring money to give to the church, the temple. And he says this, as he sat down opposite the treasury, intending to watch, and watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had, to live on. I am convinced that most of us, guilty as charged, and I've even recently tried to assess how can we live with less, that we might be able to give more. Because how many times have you had someone come up before you where you could fill a need, but you can't, because you are dedicated to a lifestyle? 
That's a lot of us. Just because you make $100,000 a year doesn't mean you have to live a $100,000 a year lifestyle. But many of us kind of set that up, and then we'll give if I can meet that. We've defrauded. People become tools to be used to profit. We've lived luxuriously and self-indulgently versus sacrificially. And he says, you've fattened your hearts. And there's two meanings. He says, you fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. Well, on the day of slaughter, you can be one of two things. That which is slaughtered or that which is feasting. So we're either feasting or being slaughtered. And the rich, as he defines it, those who have a love and a lot of wealth, but not a love for Jesus, are less interested about feeding anyone else but their family or themselves in particular, and more interested in their food. He says this image of this animal eating, his face just in the grass, eating and eating, and just like more and more and more, not even paying attention, and the day of slaughter comes, and who gets slaughtered? Chubby turkey over here that hasn't been doing anything but stuffing their face. And the one that hasn't been fed at all, the thin one, the thin little piece of cattle is going to survive. Doesn't know that as you fatten yourself on the things of the world, you're setting yourself up to be slaughtered. And I started asking myself, what do I fatten myself on most of the time? Is it relationships? Is it money? Is it alcohol? Is it sex? What's the thing that is fattening me up versus keeping me healthy because it's the glory of God? You've fattened your hearts, not even your bodies, your hearts. Last verse, and this is, what I think, the most powerful verse where he's condemning them. Shortest verse in this passage, though, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, rich guy, and he does not resist you. Finally, he concludes by calling the rich murderers and murderers of the righteous person, literally the righteous one. And the righteous person that James alludes to here says doesn't resist. In fact, he takes all the harm that's inflicted and is silent as he does it. And though that person could resist, it's implied, he doesn't. He doesn't. No, they don't. He doesn't. And I, in truth, believe this is talking about Jesus because if you think about it, that our treasuring, man's treasuring, and in particular, the people around Jesus, the treasuring of the wrong things is what condemned Jesus. And in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus warned against this. Again, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And as you skip a couple of verses in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, as he talks about treasuring. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Using your money to glorify God isn't just a good idea. It's a matter of love and hate of God. It's a matter of life and death. It's much deeper than just, oh, I'm going to check that box. According to Jesus. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 26, we'll end on this passage. And it's a story that I think brings it all into focus because we're one of the people in the story. Whenever we read a story about Jesus, we always assume we're Jesus, and we never assume we're the sinful people around him making all the mistakes. Pretty much whenever you read the scriptures and you read a story about Jesus, that's the ideal that 
you haven't reached yet, that I haven't reached yet. So typically we're not Jesus in the story, we're someone else. And even in this story, Matthew 26 is the story of, of Mary and Martha, and there's a, a companion passage where the same story is told in John chapter 12, and I'm going to insert the commentary as we read it. But it's the story of a woman that comes to Jesus and, and does something sacrificial for him. And two sisters, Mary and Martha, and one of the sisters, Martha, serving Martha, is in the background serving. And we all want to be Martha in the story because she's not even really involved. She's back serving, minding her own business, and it's great. I'll be Martha. So we're going to take Martha off the table and look at a couple other active people in the story and see who we might be, honestly. Matthew 26, verse 6. Jesus is at Bethany. He says he's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And if you read John 12, you see that uh, it's Mary coming up, and it's a pound of nard. And that perfume back then was very expensive to the extent of it cost about a year's wages to have that. So just think what a year's wages is for you. Average income uh, in America is about 50 grand. So you take 50 grand. It's an expensive bottle. Alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it all on his head as he reclined at the table. Verse 8, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, angry, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. That would have been good Christian stewardship. What are you thinking? John 12 gets a little more specific and says, wasn't necessarily all the disciples who were speaking out. Same story in John 12, verse 4. Right after the same thing happened, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because at first you read that and go, Yeah, Judas. Now, if we didn't know about Judas, we'd think that is the Christian thing to do. Why stewardship? using the resources well, not wasteful, because that's the most important thing. Jesus would never have me radically love him and sacrifice in a way that might be wasteful in the eyes of the world. No, we always must have good business sense. He says, no, no, don't mistake it. He said this, Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having a charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? Back in Matthew 26, I'm sorry. Verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Mary takes this ointment and just sacrifices and pours it out. And Judas is disgusted as Jesus is completely delighted. 
And I wonder how many times we stop short of sacrificing to God because of some wise idea we have. Well, that wouldn't be the best use of my money. Simply because it's sacrifice. It's radical. It intellectually doesn't make a lot of sense. But we'll justify it over with Judas and go, well, I can't do that. I need to make sure I'm financially secure before I blank. Before we glorify God. Mind you, verse chapter 26, a couple verses later, Judas is the one who went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 33 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to portray him. So we're either Mary or Judas. Those are your choices. One or the other. We're either loving God sacrificially with everything we have, including our wealth, or we are living self-centered lives that we can justify for anyone who might ask us why we're not. And so the question is for all of us to sit before our God and ask, do you love God? Jesus like Mary. Will you love Jesus like that? Maybe you haven't up to this point. Maybe you never considered it. But will you love Him truly? Will you love Him practically, not just say it? Will you actually demonstrate that you love Him radically in a way that maybe doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world? Generously? Sacrificially? Before you have abundance to sacrifice, which by nature is not sacrifice? That's what God is calling us to. And those, I believe, who confess that Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to sin, that Jesus has given up all there is to own. I mean, this is, we talk about, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. It's amazing that in this month of celebration, yes, we have distractions of the marketing and all that stuff, But do we really see what's happening here? Where Jesus, who is God, owns everything by nature of being God. So anything that is creation, He owns. He gives it all up, pours it all out, puts it all on the line, and comes and humbles Himself to the point of being a man, to the point of being mocked and ridiculed. Gives Himself. God, the greatest gift possible. So that we might be saved, but ultimately, so that He might be glorified. And yet, we hold on to our stuff. Even in this month. I believe our willingness to dedicate our wealth, everything that we have, to God, is a confession of our belief in the Gospel. Period. And so, let me just be careful. Giving to God, giving to God's people in His church, giving to those in need so that God will love you, or that so, as many will falsely claim, that you will prosper, is not believing the true gospel. But I also will say, not giving to God for fear that you won't prosper, or giving to God out of guilt or out of duty is not a heart 
who truly confesses the gospel. Because those who believe the gospel believe and give and love in line, in measure, with how much they believe, with all that they are, of how much they have been given, which is everything, how much God has loved them, even though He knows all the dirt and the grime and the stuff that you pursue instead of Him. He loves you that much, and given all of that, that is why we give. Not to for the approval of men, not for the approval of a pastor, not for the approval of the church, not for even God's necessary approval, so He'll love us more. We do it to proclaim His glory. We do it to proclaim how good and giving and glorious He is, and that's where it stops, whether we prosper earthly or not. That's the truth. And I'm praying that in the season of giving, but let's just not be a month of givers. It doesn't make sense to me. Suddenly we're all giving. Non-Christian, Christian, whatever, like December, like it's the season of giving. Yeah, my whole life is to be a season of giving. Not just December 1 through December 31st. And so as you proclaim by taking communion, if you're a believer, if you are a sister or brother in Christ in our family, don't take communion if you are not aspiring. And no one's perfect, and I know we don't perfectly do this all the time because we still sin. Still sin. Still a sinner. In the moment I'm sinning, I'm not giving God glory. Give myself glory. But my desires and my pursuit as he makes me more to the image of God is to bring him more glory. And today I pray that there's a change in your heart as he transforms you and that you confess maybe a little bit more or differently your perspective on life as you raise the bread, which is his body broken for you, and the cup, which is his blood shed, to cleanse you of all that stuff, to show you how much you need him and how much he has to give you. Let's pray. Father God, I am just broken because I even recognize this very moment that I don't and can never give to you in an equal share of what you have given me. And I confess, Father, that I am distracted by the earthly treasures of this world and think oftentimes that it's in them that I will be saved. And I ask your forgiveness and ask that you will break my heart and break the heart of others as we reevaluate our lives. In light of the widow, Father, who gave all she had, let us not give because we seek your approval, but let us give because we know that you have approved us. Those who confess that your Son is Lord, that he has given himself, his perfect life to us, that we might live again. Pray that that's why we will give. To you be the glory as we sing. To you be the glory as we give. To you be the glory as we live outside of these walls. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.